A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The difference between excellent and exceptional, it is thousands of hours yeah. of dedicated, focused work and practice. But you know practice. what's good about that is that anyone can do that. That's just perseverance. That is actor, singer, mum and all-round excellent human being Lucy Durack. And this is episode 220 of the Osher Ginsburg podcast. G'day and welcome to the Osher Ginsburg Podcast. This is episode 220 of the show with Lucy Durack. You can find her on Twitter at L-U-C-Y-D-U-R-A-C-K. Lucy Durack. More about her in a moment. Episode 220. The Richie Benno episode's only two episodes away. That's a really long bow. (laughs) That joke. Uh, what is this show? If you're new, hi, how you doing? I'm Washer. Sometimes you see me on TV in a suit canning roses, but each and every Monday I'm here making this podcast and have been for years. This show is a show that I make every week where the conversation that happens is well, basically a conversation where you and I get to know someone a little bit better. Extra bonus points if during that conversation you go, oh yeah, I never thought of it like that. Huh. Okay, yeah, makes sense. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's what I'm trying to do here each and every week. A big thank you to everybody that got in touch through the week. You can always send me an email. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Send Osher email at gmail.com. It's always great to hear from you. Excellent to see all the photographs you send of me where you listen. It's called a podsie, P-O-D-S-I-E. It's like a selfie, but of a podcast viewing. Like, what are you looking at when you're listening? Um it's great to hear from you. It's excellent to see. I uh, had some uh, napping babies in Tasmania and car- kids napping in car seats in Tasmania. I had the world's largest pile of clean dishes. Um, happy to have been a help with that. Uh, glorious pictures of uh, colouring in that happens while listening to this show. Tram rides, train rides, even a shot from an Australian, a homesick Australian far from home on the snowy streets of Canada. Listening to the show to, to try and plug in, feel a little more home. 
And I'm grateful to each and every one of you. And so always, you can always uh, write to me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Just snap a photo with the phone you're using right now. You can tag me on Instagram or Snapchat if you want as well. Um, to check in with you, uh, it's been a hard week. Not going to lie. Been a hard week. I've talked about this before, uh, quite publicly when I first started uh, coming out about my head. Um, but uh, hi, if you don't know, I'm Osher. Uh, I went through some pretty serious shit uh, with my head for a little while. Um, went through psychosis, uh, came out the other side. It was awful. Uh, but the big trigger, uh, if you listen to the story that I've told about what happened on the day that everything started, the big trigger for my psych- that set off the psychosis was climate change. All right. Um, basically, the short story is I looked at the facts of what was happening. And while the facts are accurate, my brain distorted the timeline and believed that the predicted effects were happening today in full force. It was very frightening. So I was having an irrational fear response to something that it's okay to have a rational fear about. Okay. I was having an irrational response to something that's okay to have a rational fear about. And I joke sometimes that it'd be just, it'd be so much easier if I was just afraid of geese or something, you know? But no, I get to be afraid of the fucking weather. <laughs> weather which surrounds me every day. It can be hard sometimes. Um, and uh, as I'm off meds now, I'm coming up on uh, two months off meds at the moment, the universe. Uh, I'm experiencing the universe at the full interpretation of my brain. Um, not that the situations I'm experiencing are intense, but the brain sometimes, my brain interprets them so, not all the time, but sometimes it, I get in a you know, state where you know, I can I perceive things as either you know, f- threats or incredible opportunities, and I can I get quite afraid or really excited about things that don't warrant either reaction. I'm on top of it for the most part. Uh, but that's, you know, that's a part of my day. It's what I what I do, and I've learned to just take a breath and go, hang on, is this, is this what I do? And okay, okay, I might just breathe. Yeah, n- not say that thing I think I should say. So that's pretty much how my day goes. So the other night, I read about uh, Yam Island in the Torres Strait. Uh, it's a part of Australia. It's right up in the tippy-tippy top, right, as we get towards Papua New Guinea, right at the very pointy end of Queensland. And I read that a combination of unseasonal weather and unusually high sea levels, plus a king tide, uh, wiped out some homes on the island. Families living there in a peaceful way, living their lives the way they've lived them for years, and they lost homes, they lost furniture, they lost everything. It must have been horrible for them. Yet I'm in my warm bed, safe thousands of kilometres away, and I panic. Because... And I trust me, I checked this with Audrey because I'm like, is it okay for me to feel this way? Things like this are a canary in a coal mine, all right? Actual parts of our country, coastline of Australia, is being affected by rising sea levels. I'm not making it up. It's not a delusion. I double check with my wife. Uh, When you have had experiences when your reality gets twisted, uh, you tend to get in the habit of sometimes checking with others to see, "Uh, do you see that? Is that actually? Okay, cool. And yeah. It's happening. What are we going to do about it? That's the question. Do we want to wait until the eastern suburbs of Brisbane, the really low ones right by Moreton Bay, you know, underwater? Do we want to wait until St Kilda and Albert Park are being smashed by weather and waves that the news will say unseasonal or unexpected? It won't be unexpected and it won't be unseasonal. It'll be very expected. 
No, we don't want to wait, do we? <laughs> so, like Jan Fran said a couple of episodes ago, she told us, I can't do everything, I can't do nothing, but I can do something. So, what can you do? You can call or you can write or you can fax your local member of parliament. Call them up, write them a letter, send them a fax. Yes, an actual fax. It's a physical thing that comes out of a machine that sounds like the internet in the olden days. And someone has to hold it in their hand and then decide where to put it in their office. Now, if you haven't got a fax machine, you can Google up, you can Google up uh, send a fax online, uh, like I did, and you can find that there's many ways to do it, even for free. It might take you about 10 minutes of your time, but you can find an app on the phone that you're listening to this very podcast on. And while it's not your house getting washed away today, action to help those who are in danger will in the end help every one of us. I did it. I, I used a little app on my phone. Luckily, because of where I live in the world, uh, my local member is also the Prime Minister. And his fax number is 02 That's 02 That's his number in Canberra. I know it sounds like we're living in the 80s, all right? But I promise you, this stuff works. This stuff works. While Twittering is fun... And retweeting things and putting photos on Instagram and stuff makes you feel like you're making a difference because people who follow you feel the same way and they go, they click like and that's, they're done. It's actual, you know, agitating and, and, and affecting the offices of the people that sit in these offices of parliament that does the difference, makes a difference. So, uh, if you've never been active before, give it a shot. Let's get active for fact's sake. See what I did there? <laughs> I can't hold back the tide. You can't hold back the tide. But I can agitate for change. And so can you. So, that being said, how are we as a community going to face the challenges ahead of us? How are we going to come together and bond? Well, partly through storytelling and through entertainment where we can all escape for a few hours and recuperate and get ready to get back out there and make things better for everyone. And that is where this week's guest comes in. I am so excited about this show. Lucy Durack is a singer and actress from Australia who came to prominence as Glinda, the good witch in the Australian production of Wicked. Now, Lucy's method for creating the life that she desired, exactly as she desired it, is astonishing. You can follow Lucy on Twitter. She's at Lucy Durack, L-U-C-Y-D-U-R-A-C-K, L-U-C-Y-D-U-R-A-C-K, that's it. Her story of how she manifested her dream role, how she stayed ready for when the opportunity came her way, it is incredibly inspiring, and it's something that all of us can learn from. I can't wait for you to hear this. You can see Lucy perform in Wizard of Oz, which just wrapped its run in Sydney, but is heading to Adelaide and Melbourne in coming months. Now, I'm not going to lie. There's some nerdy musical theatre stuff on the way, but that's okay. I will not apologise for loving musical theatre or musicals in general. I feel they're a wonderful form of storytelling. Uh, it transcends generations. Just last night, uh, Georgia, uh, my stepdaughter and her mates, all headed off to see The Greatest Showman again. And they were singing at the tops of their lungs. And they were dancing in their seats. Brilliant. It's a great show. Great film. Go check it out. So, take a big breath in. Let a big breath out. 
and prepare to bask in the glow of the radiant energy of the fabulous Lucy Durack. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Asha. How are you? I'm so happy you're here on this beautiful day. It is a beautiful day. It, yeah. Well, it's uh, we're recording this in uh, December. Yep. We're a couple of weeks away from Christmas. As I as I parked here, all I want for Christmas is you was playing, and so I had to sit in the car for a bit longer. Of course you did. <laughs> of course, you know, in the in the world of music, there are songs that I wish I'd written. Is That's one of them. Correct. Agree. Yes. I just love it. Yeah, that song. Mariah Carey, she gets paid a performance royalty. Yeah. But she has to go on tour. Yeah. She has to stand in front of people. She has to meet strangers. You write that song, you're every done. single time it gets paid, played, you get paid. And you're done. And you're done. You're Brilliant. out. Might have taken you a day. Brilliant. In fact, All- a lot of those hit songs, um, have honestly, I don't know about that one particularly, but there are certain Beatles songs and certain lots and lots of pop songs that people go, oh yeah, that took me fifteen minutes, mm. so not even a day. But it's but Lucy, it's not. It wasn't fifteen minutes work. Uh, it's it's a slightly longer story, but it it, it goes to this. Um, Pablo Picasso uh, was sitting in the square of Malaga, which is the town where he was living in the south of Spain. And he was sitting there doing his single line drawings. I don't know if you've seen them where he would yep. draw an animal without his pen leaving the page. Yep. And he was doing a single line drawings and someone came up to him and he said, she didn't know who he was. Uh, this is the time before, you know, you know, mass projection of everyone's face everywhere. So, yes. she, you know, probably knew his name but didn't know who he was. Um, and she said, oh, wow, I've been watching you do those. They're extraordinary. Do you mind if I... Could, could, I, could I buy one off you? Because he just kept flipping the page over and drawing. He was drinking a cup of coffee, smoking a cigarette. He's drawing these, you know, draw an ostrich, draw a camel, draw a sheep, whatever. And so he, he went, okay, flipped the page. And uh, he went, vum, 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 vum. Signed it. She goes, that's amazing. How much? And he said, oh, that'll be $30,000. And she went, it took you eight seconds. And he said, no, it took me 55 years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That just about sums up every artist, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. But it also sums up the the 15 minutes. True. The Beatles. Yeah. It's not not 15 minutes. That's true. It's all the work that you did that led you to the point of like, I can write a number one in 15 minutes if required. Yeah. That's pretty epic. It's true. Yeah, that's. That's very, very true. So um, I guess I, I guess writing All I Want for Christmas is you part two. Probably not on the cards I don't at know. this point. But you never know. It's gonna take it's gonna take some heavy artillery to knock that one out of modern Christmas lexicon. That's yeah. a pretty big one. Yeah, well I mean you don't need to knock it out, you just need to add to it. Yeah. You know, I don't want that one to go away. No, I mean I don't care how much weaponry Michael Bublé <laughs> is firing. You can't beat it. You yeah. can't beat Mariah, still, Michael. Yeah, no, but nobody can. Still can't. No, yeah. maybe no human can. We'll have to wait. Um, Lucy, I'm so happy you're here. Uh, we met, I believe it was the project. No, the, uh, have, um, you been have you been paying attention? We met there and I was so excited to meet you and I was like, you have to come because you're in, in this part of the world. You're rehearsing uh, at the moment 
uh, for a big new show and you have some time and I was so excited because I wanted to have you on the show. Um, and so here we are. Um, but so you are at the moment, you're, you're, you're based in Sydney at the moment, but you didn't, you didn't grow up here, did you? You grew up no, in Perth, I didn't did. you? Yeah, I did grow up in Perth. Which um, part? City Beach. Oh, so hello. if you go from the city out to the beach, yeah. that's that suburb. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lovely place to grow up. And my parents bought a – the Commonwealth Games were on in Perth in the 70s and they built all these houses and it was – my parents bought a house uh, a lot cheaper than you buy it now, a lot, lot cheaper. And it was uh, one of those – you know those flat-roofed houses that they made in the 70s and it had a lot of – a lot of the colour schemes were like brown and lime or brown and orange. Uh, that was largely us. We had – both in the same house. Yeah, it was really great. So my granddad is an architect. He doesn't work as an architect now because he's a bit older now, but um, he designed our home so that we could live in it, all three stages of it being built into now a a beautiful family Hang on, your grandfather worked for the housing company that was creating the homes for Commonwealth Games? No, no. We bought a house that was already – an Italian doctor had lived in it during the Commonwealth Games. Uh And then, um, yeah, we bought that. And then separate to that, once we bought it, my granddad – did a bit of a did re- a bit of a Renault Renault ah. um, design and yeah and we we lived well that's a bit handy yeah so that's where I grew up for my whole life until I was twenty when I moved to Sydney right Are there, were there lots of you in the house there was my mum my dad and my two sisters who are younger than me Kate and Annie Rose and we're really close in fact for when I was in year eleven about most of the year of me being in eleven year eleven Kate Annie Rose and I lived in the lounge room while we were in our final stages of the Renault together in one room and it was actually really fun. I have really like lovely memories of us all kind of bunking in. Kate and I shared a room for pretty much my whole childhood and we're, we're, we're very close. How far apart are you? We're two and a half years apart and then Annie Rose is five years younger than Kate. Right. So eight, like seven and a half years younger than How me. is your dad with all the women in the house? <laughs> My dad is six foot three. He has always worked in oil rigs and he's the sort of person that when people would call our phone in back in, you know, the 90s or whatever, be like, um, nine five three, nine seven eight two, And then they'd say, hi, can I speak to Lucy? Affirmative, standby. That's, he's a man of very few words at times. Uh, so you hang on, your dad's this is, this is old, old times. Back when the you know television was steam powered, um, it was a custom to pick up the phone and say the number yep. that the person had just dialed because there was often a misdial. Yep. You'd often put your finger in the wrong hole on the thing, and you were rolling it around. You might have dialed yep. a six and not a seven. Yeah, so he he's very practical. So he didn't want people to yeah have you know yeah. If, they, if they had the wrong number, would, we wouldn't how waste time when, on this conversation. How was he when boys came calling? Not look. He's gotten. Re- I mean, we're all three of us are now married to lovely men, but he. Um, he. I think he scared off quite a few uh, young suitors. Well, three of us. So my dad also. Um, he rides motorbikes and he's got a ute and he's big on boats and he has you know motorcycled across the Nullarbor a few times. He's pretty. He's a man. He's an action man and he's worked his whole life as say in the oil industry and he's a bit of a. He's a bit of a real-life action hero. Like a few years after this one incident happened, we had one of his friends over for dinner and he goes, oh, what about that time we got helicoptered off the rig because there were terrorists on it? And we were like, what? And he was like, yeah, I didn't, hadn't mentioned that one. And we were all like, oh, my God, Doug. Like, what are you? And we're all very girly girls. What part of the world was he in? He overseas. So he's worked in all parts of Africa and all parts of China and India and Indonesia and 
he, he worked in Egypt. Actually, he was working in Cairo during the Cairo riots. My dad's just been in all sorts of dangerous places <laughs> and love, like, you know, really quite. It gets, you know, he, he loves his job. So. so you were, you left at 20, which means that your younger sister was 14? Yes. Okay. So we've got a 13-year-old here mm-hmm. and she's magnificent. Mm-hmm. And as you were young women and, you know, the, the early explorations into, you know, the... Um, uh, you know, being motivated perhaps by some sort of physical attraction to, you know, another human being right. sexually started to appear. How did your dad deal with it? I'm asking because I'm like, yeah, fuck, right. what do I fucking do? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my dad was away every second month, so I guess that helped him kind of not have to deal with some of it. So what did your mum do? How did your uh, mum talk to you about it? My mum was pretty my mum's pretty great like we we could talk to my mum but we didn't we're not like the family that talk a lot about sex or anything like that at all mm. but uh, my mum is very open to us asking her any questions about anything and she was pretty good with us like i remember my first proper boyfriend in like year 12 was quite a naughty kid and i told her some naughty stuff that he'd done and before we were and and then a few weeks later i said mum you know He's asked me out for Valentine's Day and she was like, well, do you want to go? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, all right. Like she trusted me enough. I'm a pretty – I think also I I am the opposite of a naughty kid. Like I, I always wanted to do the right thing. In year six, I remember getting in trouble three times in my whole life at school and the middle time was – I thought I was going to get – I didn't actually even get in trouble, but a girl in my class – Sean Kane said to me, oh, you're, you're going to get in so much trouble. You've done chapter six. We're only meant to do up to chapter five of our social studies homework. And I burst into tears and went up to my teacher and she was like, that's right. You never get in trouble for doing too much homework. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I guess my mum and mum and I and my sisters and I were all really close. So I think she just trusted us yeah. and kept – she always used to say, whatever you've done, no matter if you think it's the worst thing in the world, I will always – we will always find a way out and I'm always here for you. You should always tell me because I will help you. And I think that resonated with us all and we were all – my sister was probably the biggest party animal of the three of us. Um, but, yeah, now we're all grown-up women with families of our own. Right. So yeah. as, as you were going through your teenagers, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to pick your brain of like, what the hell do I do? Um, as you're going through your teenage years, obviously you see other girls around you and, um, you know, I certainly know like from me, you know, there was guys on you that were having sex like early, right. like 15 or 16. And yeah, I, was, I mean, I went know. to a Catholic girl school. Well, Catholic, I went to a Catholic- not, not a girl, girl school, sorry. Like I was a Catholic girl. I was a, a Catholic boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very... I think I was probably quite sheltered and the friendship group that I hung out with, which we, I did go to a co-ed school and we were, we were studious and we were um, working really hard and I don't know, I think I, there was a point in my life that I thought that I'd be a virgin until I got married, which is not the case, but, you know, there was a point where I was, you know, I was towing that kind of line and quite happily because then there was, I don't know, then I was doing the right thing and yeah. just being good, which was largely my motivation for a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, just to be good and do the right thing. What were you worried <laughs> might nerd. happen if you weren't good? 
I don't know. It was too scary. I think I get scared. I'm, I was scared of being naughty. Like I remember the kids at school going, oh, we're behind where our, our school was. A really great school. It's John 23rd College in Mount Claremont. It was a, I loved it. It was great while I was going through a um, long time ago now. But it was built on a tip. It was a tip. And then they built a tip. It was it was opposite a mental institution and it was behind a bunch of decrepitated, like old buildings that were like supposedly haunted so there was lots of room for people to be naughty and we didn't even have a fence around our school when we were in primary school so we occasionally we had bomb scares all the time when I was in sort of year one to three and they seemed to you know these days they're a lot more careful but nothing nothing bad I don't think anything ever happened to anyone um yeah anyway I remember when kids went to these sort of supposedly haunted houses and I was too scared. I would never go and do anything like that. I think I was just too scared. Yeah. I don't even know what I thought would happen. I just didn't want to even know. Like I can't – I'm not very good with scary films or anything like that. Uh-huh. I don't really want to know about that. I'm a bit in denial, I guess. Yeah. That's okay. Hang on. I'm just trying to see if my, my escapologist dog is – Frankie, what are you doing? I don't know. He's trying to get out of the balcony. Or... Oh, there you are. What are you doing out there? What are you doing on the balcony, Frank? It's a lovely day. Huh? Checking. Here's a lo- it's a lovely day. It's just checking it's, it's it out. It's a lovely day. You know what I'm going to do, Frank, for you? I'm just going to wedge this door open. Otherwise, he's going to be bashing on it. It's all right, champion. Okay, buddy. You say you've got an oodle, Lucy? Yeah, we've got a moodle, a Maltese cross toy poodle. Is your oodle a bit of an escapologist? Like when you go to say, to like, if they don't want to be touched, does he jump around a bit? Yeah, he jumps around a bit. Yeah. He's a bit of a nervy dog, actually. Yeah, yeah, Frank yeah. is a bit like, see that, even that? Like, you just go out to touch him and he... Yeah, I think it's yeah. the poodle yeah, it's the side. Poodle yeah. yeah, yeah. see that? You just go to touch him and he... Yeah, yeah. same with tax. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit, now I've got to do this again. Okay. All right, <laughs> no, no, lucky. Um, yeah, because I'm... I, I, I'm sort of really, like, really facing that right now. I mean, I'm Georgia's stepdad and she was 10 when I showed up and Audrey hadn't really been with um, – it was just her and yeah, right. Georgia. And, you know, and now it's, it's you know, pretty clear that, okay, all right then. So, boys, I mean, she's stunning and yeah. she's nearly as tall as me right. and wow. uh, very confident and very forthright and knows what she – Likes and what she doesn't well, like. Well, that's great. Like, yeah. that's what you want, isn't it? Yeah, I'm really lucky for that. But it, thankfully, like, the boys that she's hanging out with are still kind of boys. Yes. You know? Yeah. But I look, uh, as you see at the bus stop at the school up the road, like, it's not long before these guys are going to start shaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's just a case of, you know, trusting her. I think I think staying open and open to communication and, like, as non-judgmental as possible, yeah. I guess. I don't. I don't know. I. I have, my daughter is two, so it will be. I know nothing about this. This is just from my own experience right. of being a teenage daughter yeah. a while, quite a while ago now. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I and I think many many men do is they think of their own teenage boy selves. Yeah. Right. And think, oh my god, I would never want to put, <laughs> you know, this beautiful baby that I you know saw grow in you know in my wife's you know tummy and, and now is, is here and it's not tummy it's womb I know that but you know yeah yep. um, <laughs> you know and, and birth and I cared for her, you know I would never want to put her in the line of fire of what I was yeah you know 20 30 years ago well, I think it depends on the child like because mm. I was very much motivated about doing the right thing we were never allowed to go and have 
you know, if we were at, because I went to a co-ed school, if there was a sleepover that was happening with boys and girls, we were never allowed to go to anything like that. Yeah. But, um, and it was, you know, that was, it was kind of an unspoken thing in a way. Yeah. But, um, well, I mean, if that came up, that would be spoken about. But it was, yeah, I don't know. I sort of, I was pretty sheltered and timid in mm. that sort of way. So, I don't know, I wasn't going out. I had I had one of my close friends and she was a bit boy crazy, but it was more about just kissing boys, I think. All right. Yeah. Were, were you I – mean, I mean, I went – like I said, I was – when I went to a Catholic boy, I lost my virginity to a Catholic high school girl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> and we were in high school when it happened. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm aware of this. You know, yeah. this, this stuff does happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, Absolutely. I don't know. I don't think – I actually don't think it was happening in my friendship group. I'm sure it was happening with people in my year. Yeah. But um, I, I think we were – yeah, like we had this uncanny number of students from my friendship group in my year that got into medicine. And so we were largely a group who were about being part of the Student Representative Council and studying to get good grades and being yeah. in a school musical. And I, I don't really – we were nerdy, nerdy, because there were nerdier kids who were yeah. more into computers and that sort of thing. But we certainly weren't the cool kids. Yeah. Um, we were kind of somewhere, I guess, in the middle. And but I guess it was what good. You, you got a kick out of you know you know working hard and yeah and seeing that academic results. And, and I just discovered musical theatre, and uh, that was just my everything. What was the what was the moment? What was the oh wow, this is the thing. Well, that probably happened when I was 11. Our music teacher at school, he was involved in the WA Opera Company and they auditioned just my school for the children's chorus of Carmen. Uh, So they needed 12 like like 12-year-olds basically, year six and sevens, um, to be part of the children's chorus and I got into that. And I remember thinking (laughs) there'd been a couple of girls in my ear who'd been in the school musicals as like the children's parts, like the one girl's sister had been in The Sound of Music so she got to play Gretel and another girl had been Little Tree in Little Tree, Big Tree, which was some Easter play. And I remember thinking, oh, they'll they'll get this because they're really good and I just love to sing but didn't really – wasn't I wasn't you know I could sing in tune but I wasn't particularly good but yeah I managed to I remember my name being called out the teacher came and stood in the middle of the two classes of year sixes and said now there's one girl in year six who's gotten in and her name is Lucy Durack I remember like he said come on up and when I'm every time I've ever won anything or gotten anything like that and they've called my name I, I get up and then I have that moment of like oh my god maybe they didn't call my name and it was somebody else and how embarrassing and then as I'm walking forward I see that it is me but yeah every time I've ever anything like that's happened. I so think. your first experience, fluke. your first experience isn't Little Tree, Big Tree. I it didn't get into that. It no. isn't some sort of school play. It's fucking West Australian Opera <laughs> yeah. Company. And it was it was magical. It was so incredible. And we learnt like Carmen twenty four no pages it's like of the Hotel French. California of of it, operas. It was pretty cool. Um, and I guess that was also probably my first experience with boys because the bo- there was six girls, six boys, and they were because they were the year above me. I like looked up to them so much, and we played spin the bottle. We locked the chaperone out of the dressing room, and we played spin the bottle with like a passiona bottle, and that was when I had my first like very timid, very like tame kiss with. Um, <laughs> 
think a couple of the boys, but one boy that I really liked. Backstage at the theatre. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, we, I remember we held hands. It was You have to get go down a few um, floors of stair, staircase to get to the stage. And we were all dressed in our – we were in rags. We were sort of street mm. kids. And they dyed our clothes and they smelled like Vegemite. And I just loved all of the drama of it all. And uh, they probably were dyed with Vegemite. I don't even know. And we went um, – yeah, and we I just kissed this boy Warwick. And I really liked him. And I held his hand as we walked down the stairs onto the stage. And you were 12. I was 11. 11. Yeah. So uh, what theatre was it in? It was w- at the Madge, so the beautiful old, It's the second oldest theatre in Australia, the oldest being the Theatre Royal in Hobart. And so it's this beautiful old theatre. It's It doesn't seat, it sort of seats, I don't know, but not as many as like the Burswood Theatre in Perth is where the big shows go, which is where we did Wicked and mm. any of the big shows go. So I haven't actually done, I've done a concert there since, but I've actually never done a show again there. Yeah. But it was really beautiful. They do sort of smaller operas and ballets. And so like it was that. a big company, full orchestra, all that? Yeah. It was amazing and it ran for like four weeks and we Holy got man. paid and it was so exciting and I I just cried and cried and cried once it was over because I thought that was it. That was the only time I was going to get to do anything like that and it had just been the absolute pinnacle of my 11 years on earth. It was just everything to me and it was over and I had to go back to just normal school. And Did you do school while it was on? Yeah, we did school while it was on. And did you have a tutor come to the uh, theatre or did you no, have to go to... No, we just went to normal school because oh. we were all from the same school, so we just went and did normal so, school. But then you'd have to go... Was it... I can't remember the show. Were you, like, on the way all the way to the end or can you skip out after the We acts? would do a bow, I think, at the end. Oh, right. Um, so you had to hang out. Yeah, we had to hang out, which oh. was just great. I just, I just wanted to live there. Like, I was so excited. And there was this amazing opera singer who's an amazing opera singer now, and I've seen her a couple of times in as a grown-up with careers um called elisa wilson and she was playing michaela i think the character's name is and she's this the young ingenue she's beautiful and she wears she actually in our production wore this outfit that looked like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. So it was this white, fluffy, flouncy um, top with a blue pinafore kind of dress and she had this long hair and she wore false eyelashes and she showed me how she put her false eyelashes and I did a project on her at school. She was my hero and I just thought she was the best thing ever and I, yeah, kind of just went about my way trying to just be her for years. (laughs) Isn't that something, though, that we, you know, and I, I, so many people have sat in that chair and I've done this so often now and I think we're 200 and something this week, 211 is this week. Wow, so by congratulations. The time, oh, it's, you just do it every week and it builds up, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it's the same with when you think about how many shows of Wicked you did and, like, people would freak out. You know, I just did it every day. Yeah, and yeah. Suddenly it's hundreds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how many people kind of just knew at 11, yeah. at 10, yeah. like, boom, that's it. That's what I want to do. And it's the constant pressure. But you were very lucky in that you had the model of you you had exactly, you know, this is it. This is – I have a clear picture on my head. Success is going to look like when I am this person in that dress on this stage singing that song. That's success. And not many people are lucky enough to have that. They have a vague idea. I want to be a rock star, but they don't have, you know – the clear-cut yeah. definition of success. And You're that would have been very right. helpful for you. Definitely. Whereas you're making decisions left or right, left or right, yep. which one's going to get me closer to this? And I really think it, there was a time in my life where I thought maybe I'd go into opera. I've, I'm sort of trained fairly classically, um, but I don't think opera is actually really me. Musical theatre is more me. And, I, and the acting side of things was always kind of more of the pull, even though I've done – a lot of singing lessons over my years. And as I say, it wasn't like when people go, oh, wow, like 
you know, because I sing now for a living, were you we one of those kids who was really great from early on? I really wasn't. Like I really, I just loved it and I worked really hard. I could sing in tune, but I wasn't like, you see those kids going like the junior voice or whatever, and they're just incredible. I certainly wasn't that. And I've got the VHSs to prove it. But um, I was really lucky when I was, so the same um, man whose name's Mr. Ian Westrip, who was the high school music teacher when who got us into Carmen and was the one involved with the WA Opera Company. He was a teacher at WAPA, the WA Academy of Performing Arts, and I was desperate to get into WAPA. After I actually didn't know what WAPA was until I was in my final year, and my high school drama teacher, who was really influential, Mr. George Saxiris, told me and another girl about this place. And I went and saw an open day and loved it and got into the part-time course, which is a certificate of musical theatre which was about 14 hours a week. And so I did that along with another arts degree um, in my first year out of school. But I was my, I'd been starting singing lessons with, with Ian Westrick, knowing that he was a, a Whopper singing teacher. I think we had to have like an accredited Whopper singing teacher. So, and I'd known him a little bit. Anyway, he said to me, you're not, you're not a good enough singer to get into the course. Um, you need to have three singing lessons a week. And I thought, gosh, I can't afford that. Like I, I was doing little bits and pieces of work here and there, babysitting and various things, but not enough to earn to, for that sort of money. And he goes, no, no, no. I mean, I'll, you pay for your one singing lesson a week and I'll give you three. So for the whole year, I was his first lesson Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'd go in at 9am and I'd have three singing lessons a week. And I, I also wasn't a good enough dancer. And so I did as many dance classes as I, I was just obsessed with this goal of getting into WAPA because I'd gone and I'd seen, in fact, Nat O'Donnell, who's currently playing Donna in Mamma Mia and her now husband, Simon Gleason, who was Valjean in Les Mis. I'd seen them in the production of Carousel and the two of them were just, just the greatest things I'd ever seen. They were kind of my new, I've always had people to look up to and I love having people to look up to. And I just wanted to be like Nat and Simon. And they're now two of my really close friends that, um, they didn't know me at that time. I was just a fan. Yeah. And, and he's doing Jean Valjean, which was the first role he had in high school on the West End. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Right. He, he sat in that chair he's too. He's just finished. Well, he's now back. Oh, he's back. doing that. Oh, yeah. Right, right. But yeah, he, but he, still, yeah, he's pretty, a pretty incredible guy. I'd love to have him back. Cause he, he sat there and he drank tea. Yeah. I'd love to have him back. And he's I'm good. like, well, what do you do now, man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you fucking do now? Yeah. Like well, you've I'm... taken this high school dream, you've done it on the West End where it started there is with that. Cameron McIntosh. What are you going to do now? <laughs> I, I don't know without to have to ask him that. But it is that. Like I sort of had that with Glinda in Wicked was that for me. Not that I did it at school because it wasn't around then, but I remember the moment I heard Glinda singing the song Popular, which is that popular, you're going to be popular. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like – I can, I can do this. I feel like mm. I can do this. And I hadn't done a lead role in a big musical, but I just was so – a lot of people are inspired by that show. Wicked is yeah. incredibly inspirational. But then I worked for like a few years to kind of get ready. If it came to Australia or I was willing to just go anywhere in the world to try and get in, I just wanted to be part of it. I didn't care if I understudied it. I just wanted to be part of it. And I um, – when I did get to do it, it was completely magical and it changed my life. And then I, we, we sort of had done it for about three years and I got to the point where I was like, okay, I think my time with this, it was going to Asia and my boyfriend, now husband at the time, was working a lot in Australia and I didn't really want to be on too far away from him. It would have been like a good year and a half or something. So, yeah, and, and there was lots of other things I wanted to try, but... We had this incredible thing that our producer, Bernadette Hayes, gave sent this email around to our company of Wicked and she said, now, you know, you're all going 
a lot of you are, are leaving the company and it's been a big three years. We'd had a lot happen. Rob Guest, our original wizard, very, very suddenly died three months into the run and we'd had lots of lots of things that we'd gone through as a company, life things, and just being kind of – you sort of institutionalised in a way when you're doing eight shows a week. You know, you're on a different time schedule to most people and, yeah, it's just a different life. But So you're going back out into the world. I'm going to – if you want – we can have these group, three group sessions with a sports psychologist and I'll also pay for every, whoever goes to those to have a one-on-one session with this guy. Only three of us of the whole company of about, I don't know, probably 60 or 70 of us went and he helped us set up goals because it was that moment, like you just said, of going, all right, well, I got – this was my highest goal of my life that I could think of and it was how fortunate – that I got to do that. But, yeah, what do I do So this now? is a person whose job it was, like, say, for example, someone, you know, and we've all seen it, they stand there at the end of the grand final of, of what it is, he or she, whether, you know, she's just won the Soccer World Cup or something that she's got her baby with her and they're doing the interview and she's got the kid on her and goes, and this is my last game ever. Yeah. And so this is the person that says, okay, yeah. you've done it, you've got the World Cup in your hands, um, let's help you transition out yeah. of this thing you've been doing since you were 11 yeah. into finding something else. And that's really freaking cool it that your producer did that for you. incredible. She's yeah. an incredible woman. And this guy actually, funnily you should say, he, he was the sports psychologist for the Australian cricket team for a while and he did exactly that with a lot of sports people because yeah. obviously that's quite a big thing. So it really helped us and it kind of, he said, well, what do you want to do next? And I think we were all, the three of us who'd gone, we were sort of we're like, we didn't really know, but he was like, well, what do you love? Like what would make you happy? And I said, I'd I, I'm watching a lot of – I'm obsessed with different television series and I particularly like comedy, but he's like, was there something in Australia that you'd like to do? And I was like, well, I guess it would be like a mashup of Offspring and Modern Family or something like that. And I just I just thought of that the other day and the series that I, I just filmed for Channel 10 called Sisters is essentially that. Like it kind of is that. It's a very modern family um, and, and it's by the creators of Offspring. So I, he really did help me set up goals to sort of shoot for and do things and you know once you've got those goals then you have to do something about it and yeah he really he really did help me an enormous amount can we go back a little bit to when you were doing the three singing lessons a week and yep. the, and the dance classes what was it like i mean i'm writing a book at the moment and i had um some spectacularly terrifyingly beautiful, glorious in their, in their failuring attempts at getting into QUT drama and UQS drama um, when I finished high school, uh, which included choreography. Uh, oh, boy. And, oh, boy. Me too. <laughs> but I remember showing up to those auditions and looking around and, like, uh, Gigi, up until she started high school, was doing 14 hours a week at one of the elite dance wow. academies here. Yeah. All right? And even then, you know, and there were girls who were doing seven more hours than that, including solos and, and, and you know, one-on-ones and stuff like that, all right? Yep. And these are the kids that keep going through high school and then a year later are standing in this audition room. It, like, how did you deal with how intimidating that was? I was really nervous. I, I had – I sort of had crippling nerves even once I – like in that first year of the certificate when I looked around and I saw how incredible everybody was and I really did feel like the weak link, like I felt like I'm not as good as these people. And I'm pretty sure 
so I did the certificate course and I felt extremely nervous and I, my audition, oh, I, I just cringe when I thought even my audition to get into the certificate course, no wonder they didn't take me the full-time course. We'd done Funny Girl at school and I played Fanny Bryce, the Barbara Streisand role. And we had a little bit of choreography that we'd done it done in it. And I kind of took that and did that in my audition. I'm sure it wasn't very good. Not the choreography. The choreography was probably good, but I probably didn't do a very good job of it. Um, I hadn't choreographed it. Our choreographer had done, she'd probably done a really good job, but I, um, I just cringe thinking what, what I must've looked like, but they must've seen something enough of potential, I guess, to get me into the, the part-time course. And it's, it's a lot easier to get into the, the part-time course. And, um, but yeah, so what kept you going through like when you were just not getting the choreography? Not, I mean, I've done in my career. I've yeah. dan- done dances with people. Um, I once had a stupidly challenged Danny Minogue to a dance off when I was doing a radio <laughs> thing. She looked sideways while she was checking her phone at the choreographer while he was showing us the first time around. The next time he did it, she had it step for step. Yeah, right. all right. But she's gone to the Young Talent Time School of yeah. you know military drill training. Yeah. All right. Yeah. How did you deal with like that? Like, and you're trying to still keep this dream of this is all I want to do. I have to get into it. I have to do it. Have to do it. Did you ever go? Oh man, I might have to go work in a bank or something. I, I did, but later I did actually start a law degree after I'd finished my musical theatre degree and done a year of Mamma Mia. But um, and that was yeah. I, st- I I still to this day think of myself as an actor singer mover, even though I had a year where I I am now. I'm probably a better tap dancer than any other kind of dancer because we. Do- Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I did a lot of tap then through – I did bits and pieces of tap in high school, but certainly nothing like Gigi, like nothing like those many, many hours that I know lots of people, including my husband because he grew up in a dance school that his mum owned. But um, I – yeah, I, I think I just put up with – it was just hours and hours of humiliation, but I just wanted it so badly that I'm still not a great dancer, but in terms of a GP person, I'm an average dancer. But in terms of proper people who can dance, I'm really down the bottom line of things. I can dance enough to get by and I have had to. But like I even had once, I don't read reviews, but somebody tagged me in a review when I did Legally Blonde and they said something to the effect of that it was kind of charming that I wasn't as good as the other girls. It sort of added to the kind of vulnerability of Elle Woods. And I was like, why did she tag me in that? That's just saying that I'm a bad dancer, that I, I know more of that more than anyone else. <laughs> so I don't know. I've worked really hard and I've done, like, I've done probably definitely hundreds, if not thousands of hours of, of dance training um, to, tr- to get to what I am now. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine enough to get through as a principal, probably not 
in Mamma Mia, I got in in the ensemble. The ensemble are really good dancers, typically. Like, they're amazing dancers. So I'm not good enough, probably, to be, ironically, in an ensemble of many shows. But as a principal, you can get away with not being, you know, as, as good in some shows. Some principals are amazing, but I'm not one of them. So would you think the thing that kept you going was also the thing that auditioners saw? I think the thing that kept me going was just that dream of and that, like I was obsessed. Like I had different musical theatre CDs, and I every single word. And I, I my mum has been such a great support of mine that I would find the scripts and I'd sing every single part and read out every single part for her. And I was just I had such a clear cut obsession with musical theatre that 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 was probably what kept me going. Just the the the, oh, the hope, but there was, that hope was always coupled with that underlying like maybe I'm not good enough maybe it's not going to work out and every time I've ever gotten a job I've always thought like I said before maybe it was a fluke and maybe it'll get there and it'll be either they'll either be like oh Lucy Durek no we're after we actually meant Lucky Durek sorry you have to go home or <laughs> something like that or, or I'll get there and I know very clearly that in almost every musical theatre contract there's like a six-week probation period and I'm always quite nervous in that first six weeks thinking they could fire me and they can just get somebody else in but wow. yeah I feel quite nervous in that that sort of way. Because a lot of people probably just have, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, people watch the Olympics, all right, and they see a swimmer or a gymnast or, or something like that. It's fairly um, well publicised the thousands and thousands of hours and dedication and 4 a.m. starts that have yep. gone into that person not even standing on the podium, just standing on the deck, yeah. just getting, just making the team and making it to totally. Athens or Tokyo or whatever. Though when it comes to something like musical theatre, I don't know if people kind of realise, yeah, you can be gifted, and but gifted, it might get you in the door. Yeah. But it's not going to get you on the shortlist. No. And then you get the job and, you know, that's, that's a whole other ball game that you're kind of not prepared for in some ways. Like once, particularly once you get a lead role in musical theatre, it's about so much else other than just getting through the eight shows a week, which is is trying and challenging in its own way. And yeah, it's, it becomes about the publicity, and it becomes about being the leader of the company, and it becomes about being accountable for so many different areas. And I actually really like that side of things, but I've some, seen some people get there and go, oh, I'm not they're not really interested in that side of things and that is such a big part of the job that that becomes a bit, mm. you know, challenging in different ways. So I would see a lot through, um, I mean, I my musical theatre experience is high school uh, and, you know, I loved the shit out of it. Yeah. Um, and then through my fantastically spectacular fail of not getting into drama uh, university degrees, um, I, did, I did do music as a tertiary thing um, and contemporary music, but then through Idol, just seeing the thousands and thousands of people that would show of up and audition, all right? And it, it did kind of break me in a way. It kind of ruined me a bit yep. because I was exposed to such a humongous volume of oh, almost there, Yeah, you know, to the point where, you know, you, you look, I don't know how people who audition singers for a living do it. Because by the end of seven years of it, I was like, man, the yeah. difference between excellent and exceptional, it is what you're saying. It is nothing more than thousands of hours yeah. of dedicated, focused work and But you practice. know what's good about that is that anyone can do that. 
that's just perseverance. Like I really think it's it's hard to stay – I think the challenge is to try and stay positive about it because there's always that thing that maybe I'm – that, and I guess it's a driving factor too that maybe I'm not good enough. But if I just keep, if you just keep at it, if it's something that you want badly enough, you, you are probably going to do. You're probably going to get there because if you just keep at it and you spend your life working towards that, then you will you will get better and you know, better and better and better, and eventually something will come of it. So I think that's that's kind of what got got me through eventually is that. Yeah, if you just you've got a goal and you've committed to this goal, and then you just have to put in the the work. Really, like. So what you're saying is that you might not have been born or just be effortlessly, naturally as gifted a singer or a dancer as person you know B yeah. who you're up against in the audition. That is completely beyond her control. It's beyond your control. Yep. You know, and having lived in Los Angeles, you know, I know what it's like when you walk into an audition room and there's. 20 replicants of you sitting in the room <laughs> and there's, you know, 20 other, you know, five, five and a half foot blonde kids, you know, with the same beautiful smile and eyes as you do. And you're like, holy shit, how am I going to tell the difference between any of us? <laughs> yeah. the, diff- the, 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 the one thing that is interesting about the way you look at it is that it takes the, the locus of control and puts it back within you in that, Yes, you can be powerless over who they choose for the gig. Yes, you can be powerless over how gifted this person was when they showed up. You have absolute 100% control of how hard you've worked. Yeah. And if you in your heart know that you've worked the hardest that you can, then you've, you can almost rest easy a bit because then you're like, I've done my part and if it doesn't work out, then it's not meant to be or, you know, some sort of fate sort of out or whatever. I don't know. Like I do re- – I, the older I get and the more I go on, the more I think nobody's actually in competition with anyone because if you're going to get it, you're going to get it and if you're not, you're not and it doesn't matter who you're up against. If you're not going to get it and you're the only one for the role, they'll just not give it to somebody and they'll hold out and they'll find somebody else. And, and, if, and again, if you are going to get it, then it's yours. And I sort of have trust, you have sort of, sort of trust or faith in the universe or something like that, that the right things will come your way if you just keep putting it out there, I think, or, or a version of, of the right thing for you. Mm. And um, that's but keep, kind of keeping the work as well. Keeping the work and keeping the goal. Like I, I, I am also a person who I like having a goal because then it gives me something tangible to work towards. And even if you don't get that exact goal, you will often get something or probably always get some version of that that will satisfy some part of your soul. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm a real goal person and throughout my life I've kind of set different goals either on purpose or sort of on a more subconscious level, I guess, from an earlier age. Yeah. It's so it's so great to hear because not not everyone listening is is can you know can sing a note. Yeah. Not everyone listening can can move in time and, and maybe musical theatre will be the furthest thing from their mind. But what you're saying is so applicable to every single aspect of love. Your your goal may be to have, you know, a, a you know a really happy, successful, safe and and productive family. Yeah. You know? Um and the amount of work that does go into that, you you are in control of. Like the, what you're saying, and like the application of the method you've used to get the things you've achieved is so transferable across you know disciplines that you know it's just great to hear the, the an actual example of it you know yeah. of it happening. Um, so where were you? I mean, I know it's not a thing you do anymore. Though the the world of the Wizard of Oz is still in your life. Um, where were you when you first heard the 
songs from Wicked? I was in my friend Matthew Hayward's car. And we were in Melbourne and it was freezing and he goes, listen to this new musical. Like he, I think he might have picked me up from the airport or somewhere and he was driving me a fairly decent distance. And he, I remember he played me Defying Gravity, which is Elphaba's song at the end of Act One. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, if you if you like musical theatre at all, it, you've got a pretty it's high chance. Goosebumps, of, yeah, just it's remembering when it's I saw insane. the show. insane. And I was yeah. just like, heard that and I thought, what is this show? My goodness. And then the next song he played me was Popular and I was like, Oh, like I, I'm not the person who can sing Divine Gravity. I'm so in awe of people who can. Um, but I heard Popular and I thought, that sounds like, that sounds like my bag. Like, and that sounds like something I, I could do. And the more I kind of then became, I became obsessed with Wicked. And, um, fortunately, like, YouTube and stuff, it had opened in 2003 and this must have been like 2004. And so people had done like sneaky illegal recordings and there was quite a lot on YouTube that I could quickly access. And I very quickly became obsessed with this show and Kristen Chenoweth who played Glinda, I just thought she's so funny and she's such a wonderful actress and she's an incredible singer. And I sort of just started to try and do everything within my power to be prepared for this show um, should it come to Australia? I didn't even know because sometimes big hits don't – I mean, these days they mostly do come to Australia, but in those days they didn't necessarily um, always come. So I was sort of thinking, all right, like even if I can get on some tour somewhere in the world and understudy Glinda or something, like that would just be so incredible. And so, yeah, I, I, it, I did – I listened to that song over and over. I listened to the whole soundtrack over and over and I – yeah, I, I just started to almost kind of get in training, I guess, for that that role. So even though you, there'd been no casting calls, there'd been no Nothing. you know no rumours or whispers of an Australian production or even an Asian production or even a, you know they're, they're casting for it you know in Dubai or London or wherever, you're like. Just in case, you know, I'm going to learn this. It was like one of those times that I'd I'd actually so this is to say 2004. I. Um, if we go back a tiny bit, 2000, end of 2002 is when I graduated from WAPA and I started Mamma Mia, which was uh, – I did that for a year. And I actually had – I had a bit of a hard time on Mamma Mia because I – I think partly because I wasn't a great dancer and I was understudying roles. Um, and they the director at the time, she pulled me aside and she said, we're taking away understudying um, rights basically and – we think she thought that I was, she said, dangerous and vacuous performer. And I was like completely heartbroken. And I'd moved from Perth to Sydney for this show. And I always knew I'd moved to Sydney or Melbourne, but I was really homesick. And I was living with one of my best friends from school, but her and her friends that I was living with were studying science and medicine and stuff. So we were on opposite hours and I was really lonely. And I just was, that was enough to kind of just make me go, what am I doing here? And I was so sad. It was probably the hardest part of my life. Um, I really just thought, I, I think I need to, I don't think this, I mean, cut out for this industry and it, it the last few months of the contract really hard. I did actually end up going back on as a couple of my understudies because as things goes in a long running musical, people get sick and you end up going on. But knowing that she didn't have any faith in me and she didn't think I was good for it, it was really, it was really hard. And, um, and because that was my whole world and I'd worked my whole life to get to that point. Mm. And she was essentially telling me that I wasn't good enough. And that was really hard. So anyway, I, I, I thought, okay, I, I'd liked political and legal studies at school. Um, I'll see, maybe I should see if I can get a, a real job and, and get a law degree. So I, I put forward to apply for Sydney Uni Law and I thought if I get into that, then it's a sign and I should do it. So I did get into that and I, I did a semester of law here. 
and I had this really nice group of friends and I was dating a guy in the course and on paper the lecturers were really interesting. It's, it's a Sydney Uni is a, a very good law course and on paper I should have been having a great time and I was just miserable and so I went to the acting dean at the time and I thought, I said to him, I just, I'm having a really hard time and I'm really homesick. I think I'm going to move back to Perth and he was like, so he was so lovely and he helped me defer and I told him what I was doing. He said, I think you should give acting a bit more of a crack because, you know, you've had one you know, I think you only had one year out trying it. Why don't you give that a crack? Anyway, I was just, I was just really in a low point in my life and I felt really purposeless and I moved back to Perth. I moved my whole room of stuff. I was living in Surrey Hills. I moved my bed and my furniture and stuff. And on the last day, my mum said to me, hey, don't move your car. Like my auntie lives here and she said, why don't you leave it at your auntie's house? And we've got cars in Perth. Mum's quite intuitive like that. And I moved back to Perth for four days (laughs) and I thought, no, okay. The I, I I was in my mind going through every option of anything possibly that I might be interested in trying to do for my life, and I was twenty one, and I just couldn't think of anything apart from performing. And I thought, all right, I think I've left performing because I was scared, and I think I just have to give it another shot. So I moved back. They hadn't even rented out my room yet, so I moved back into my old room, but I had no furniture in it. So somebody lent me a futon, and I slept on a futon really minimally for a while. And for a couple of years there, I just did like very base stuff. I worked at a few different shops and I and I got into a children's musical that was on for a week and I did a guest role on All Saints and I did like little bits and pieces along the way and sort of just said yes to every opportunity. And during that time I met I was singing for free at this some networking event. I don't know, I somebody else couldn't do it so that somebody asked me if I could do it. And I went and sung a few numbers and this man came up to me and he said, I do like life coaching for businesses. Um I, I'd like to help you. I can sense in your voice that, you know, you've got more that you want to do with your life. And it sounds really full on. And at the time I sort of thought I just didn't know whether he was for real or not, but I thought if I keep my wits about me, I'm kind of at rock bottom anyway. Like what have I got to lose? And this really kind man then helped me and I met with him like once a week for kind of coaching as to how to set goals and how to um, like in a spiritual way and also in a really kind of practical way. And I started properly for the first time writing down goals and um, having things that I really just wanted and, and working and then putting in things. Like it's it, at the time it felt like, oh, well, new agey. But the more I go on, the more I think it's just practical. If you write down what you want and then you go about working towards it, you're going to be closer to getting it than if you're not. And, and I started doing that really in quite a dedicated way. And um, the biggest goal, he said, I want you to think of like the biggest goal you could think of. Like if you want to be the, at the time, Oprah was really huge. And I mean, she's still really huge now, but her show was on. He's like, if you want to be the next Oprah or whatever it is, like write that. And I thought, and I just heard Wicked, the soundtrack. And I thought the the thing in the world that would just be the craziest thing is if I was the original Glinda in the Australian production of Wicked, not knowing that Wicked would come, just putting it out there as this huge thing. And yeah, and so I worked towards that like for for years and then it did audition at the end of 2007. So I guess I effectively worked on it for like three years, just hoping that it would come. And, um, and, and to this day, I can't hardly believe that I, that I got it. I, I did get it. It was. Do you remember the audition? Yeah, yeah. Um, I did three auditions, and I had planned what I was going to wear down to the point that I'd found this dress that was perfect in French Connection, but it was cream, and I wanted to wear pink because Glinda wears pink. And so I went to a place that got dyed to the right shade of pink. It sounds. I was obsessed. Like I really was quite obsessed, and I, I had, I had the time. Like I was, you know, that was 
I was sort of early 20s and that was what I was doing with my time. I didn't really, I had sort of not really long-term boyfriends at that time and I sort of just had the time to work, put all my eggs in this basket in a way. And, um, yeah, so I went in to Melbourne because I was doing, I'd been doing a musical that year and the show was in Melbourne. So my first audition was there and I went in and they said, and I was all doled up as Glinda and I'd figured out how I was going to curl my hair the same way that she does. And I wore this flower and, and, um, yeah. And I went in and they were like, all right, we want to come, you come back tomorrow with like a much more subdued look. <laughs> like I sort of gone a bit far in costume. So I went back the next day, still in a pink dress, but in a more relaxed way. Uh, and they were like, I want you to they're like, okay, you need to come back in wearing blue. Like, cause I'd still gone in, I think probably not mm. really taken the note far enough. So my final audition was in Sydney and I did go in wearing blue and white and a kind of much more relaxed outfit. They were like, wear very minimal makeup. And, um, and I went in and I remember Rob Mills was in the room. He was auditioning for Fierro and that from what I could gather, there was no other Fierros and there were two Elphabas auditioning, one of which was Amanda Harrison who got the role. And, um, and, and yeah, and I couldn't see any other Glinders, and I'd kind of really like put it out of my mind that anyone else was even auditioning for it because I was just so focused on it being my role. And I, 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 my boyfriend, who's now my husband, Chris, who I just started going out with, we we then went up. It was Christmas time. We'd gone up to the Gold Coast to hang out with his mum, and I was so nervous. I knew people were finding out that day, and I hadn't heard anything, and I was getting so nervous. And he's like, "Just turn your phone off." We went to Byron for the day, and just had a day off, and I. It was beautiful and I just did put it out of my mind. And at the end of the day, I turned my phone back on and I had like a million phone calls and messages and it was my agent. And I was on the driveway at Chris's mum's house in Eleonora and just it was her. She goes, so the thing with Wicked is it was a bit like I was on Australian Idol or something. She's like, so she just kept saying, yep, so. And in her voice, she sounded like I hadn't got it. And she's like, the thing with Wicked is you got it, you got it, you're Glinda. And I was like, oh, my God, it was so the best thing ever. And Chris and I went and had champagne on the beach and it was just, I couldn't believe it. it was, wow. I still can't believe it. It's so cool. There's, that's so, so exciting to hear you tell that story. Um, and and to, to, to rewind a few steps, um, back to the networking moment, the networking event which you were doing as a favour for someone else and this person in the room heard in your voice something. Yeah. Now, if the one thing that I did know and managed to glean from all the years of, of doing Idol, and Mills is a perfect example, he won't mind me saying this, not the greatest singer. Not the greatest singer. Well, he wasn't then. I'm sure he's far better better now with great work. But when he sings, you know exactly who he is. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. Like he is singing from his soul and it translates not to you just in the room but through a microphone, through a television to someone's living room. They get exactly the kind of person that he is. They know already who he is and, yes, come and have dinner. All right? So we talked about work, 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 work. But that thing, that's a thing that's very, very, very hard to do. And it reminds me of that film. Have you seen 20 Feet from Stardom? No. Fuck. Okay, it's a, it's a film, incredible documentary about the greatest backup singers. Oh, I've heard of, of this. Of all time. Yes, okay. All right. And I think two of them, Luther Vandross, who was a BBs for David Bowie, and Sheryl Crow, who was BBs for Michael Jackson, became stars. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, like, technically 
implore, like you could not fault them technically, but just it's just just not there. The emotion just isn't there. So there was something in your voice, and and maybe that's the thing that has helped you have the career you've had. And you've said it fifteen times that you weren't you're not the greatest singer in this chat mm-hmm. right now. You've said you're not the greatest dancer, but you've got that thing. You've got that thing that people get you when you sing, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. And I'm going to say it's a very, very hard thing to learn. Right. Because it's hard to teach. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I don't really. Yeah, it's a hard thing to put your finger on really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, But I do know what you mean because I know that with Mills. Like I love Mills' voice and he's – you know, he's worked really hard and he's gotten really clever. But you're right, there's just something in his voice that's, yeah, you just get him straight yeah. away, you know. And, I mean, that was what was great with him in Wicked. He sings a song, Dancing Through Life, and it's easy and very few people in the world can probably sing that really convincingly. Mm. And um, it's such, it's like one of those songs that appears really easy and it's actually really hard and he's he's just nailed it. He was so good. And I remember them saying he was the only prince that walked through the door because he plays a winky prince and uh, and he really was perfect for that, perfect yeah. for that. Yeah. When you were in the, that kind of rough year that you, or years that you yeah. described where you were just doing gigs here and there and doing stuff for no money and yeah. working at retail and yeah. all this other stuff, what was it that, that kept you... Going. How many and how many times a week were you singing popular? Yeah, like I was singing popular probably like at least every day or so. You still, um, I was no, singing it in my car. I was driving. It was all about like that imagining that you're doing it, and and even just the imagining that I was doing it was giving me such a lot of joy that that was keeping me going. And and I I was doing a lot of reading and stuff of different law of attraction books and all of that sort of thing. And everything that just kept saying, you know, as soon as you get a negative thought, try and turn it into a positive, you know, or try and think of it in a more positive light, try and think of a more positive version of what you're thinking. So anytime I think I might not get it, I think, but I, but you might get it. And, you know, you, you just keep trying to be as focused as possible. And some days it was much harder than other days, but I think it was partly that I'd moved my whole, I'm such a fam, my family are so important to me. And I grew up in a family, we lived, we all lived walking distance from each other growing up, all my aunts and uncles and cousins. And I'd moved away from that. And I kept thinking, all right, well, if I've done that, then I have to commit to this fully because I've got nothing else. And if not, then I should just go back to Perth and find something that I can do in Perth because that is what makes me happy is being around my family. And so I think that probably the almost the isolation of that helped me a lot. And I was living with the most beautiful family. I had incredible support from my one of my closest friends that I grew up with, Rach, and her family moved to Sydney around the same, a bit before I did. And when I was at this rock bottom and I had no money and I needed to get a job, I'd gone around to Rach and Rach's mum, Marg's place, and I was sitting around their kitchen table. And they, and Marg just said, you should come and live with us. And she, every week I paid a really minimal board, which she never asked for. And if ever I was a bit late, I'd say, I'm so sorry, and give it to her. And she goes, you know, we don't expect you to pay board. Like she just had such a lot of generosity in her heart and I forever I'm so grateful to the Fitzgeralds. I was so incredible. On top of that, the year before that, their Damien who um who is in their family had a dirt bike accident and became a quadriplegic. Mm. And so they were dealing with such a lot in their family and they just still were just incredibly kind to me. Marg helped me look through the paper and find a job at the local physio where I worked for, as a receptionist for on and off for a few years there and 
she helped me so much just with her kindness and she was so sort of non-judgmental. She's a writer. She's a great writer. And, um, she saw, so she's a really, she's a creative person. And I think she just saw that I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And she just helped me just by being there, like, and being really, really kind to me and very, very generous. Do you try and do that in your life now? Like to others? I, I do like, and I really, I remember the people who were, help me through that time. And when I, if I can see somebody having a hard time, I want to try and be there for them. It's a fine line between being there for somebody and pushing your, trying to be there for them in an almost overbearing way. So it's, um, I'm always trying to be conscious of that at the same time, but, but yes, I, um, I do try and be there and I'd love to be, I don't, I'm definitely not as kind and generous as Mark, but she's somebody definitely to aspire to. Oh, there's, there's time. I'm sure, I'm sure some, you know, you'll, it'll be a day where some, you know, some 22 year old kid that you, you're like, oh, kid, you've got it. You're in a bad time right now. It'll, and you'll be like, the only thing I can do is let you move in with me. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that'll be, you know, yeah. that'll, that'll be, that'll be what happens. Uh, yeah. So I, I do want to ask you, and, and I have talked about this before, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a way to ask the question that, that helps kind of get to the, to the bottom of it. Um, so I, even when I was, you know, doing Idol or um, when I was doing I, – I, when I did Channel V, I, I, I loved doing it because I love music and it's all I wanted to do, right? Idol, I love music. It's all I wanted to do. Um, here on The Bachelor, it's – and Bachelor in Paradise now and The Bachelorette. So these – I don't know how I, I went from being unemployed to having three primetime shows. But, Lucy, it's <laughs> Nailed happening. Nailed it. Congratulations. Um, I love those shows as well. Don't worry. You know, unemployment is – Still in there, still, still in the future. Um, the the absolute core of yes, I love working with the team. Yes, I love love the people that I work with. Yes, I love to go to work every day and help people fall in love. I don't mind that. This is how I get to pay my mortgage and you know put shoes on the kids' feet and you yeah. know you know food in the fridge and you know help Audrey and we the, you know we can all make a family together. All those things are nice. What I really, really, really love about what I do is that I give people who otherwise who don't know each other, I give people who otherwise don't know each other, I give them something in common that they can talk about. And that is the best thing about my job. And like people can be sitting on a train, on a bus, out of like, you know, yeah. whatever, and they go, oh, did you see what happened with Jared yeah. last night? Oh, no. That's the thing that I love about what I do. I get to help people in our community that otherwise wouldn't have something to talk about, give them something to talk about. Yeah. So... What is it, despite how much you, you know, always wanted to do this, what, what is it that you just love about what it is that you do? I, I love, I, I guess I tend to mostly play characters that are good by nature. And so within the realms of, of that, I like to be part of a storyline that inspires people to be kind of hopefully the best version of themselves and that sounds a bit wanky and I'm sure that's not what I do for heaps of people. Don't but walk back from it, Lucy. Hold fire, hold firm. But that is what I love playing characters with a core of goodness yeah. and it's what I, I guess it helps me too because that's what I'm striving towards and we all have faults and we all have flaws and 
Um, but it's about celebrating. The more I go on, the more it becomes more that I, the jobs that I want to do are about people who have a realness to them. They might not be in a real setting, but they have something real and truthful about them. And there's something that's difficult and that they're overcoming it by using a lightness or a goodness. And that's, I like being part of those storylines and I like being part of that perhaps inspiring people to just live their best life. I guess mm. that's um, at the core of why, why I love doing that. And that's why when everybody goes, whenever somebody says, oh, don't you want to play the villain? And I, I know that so many people go, oh, it's so fun to play the villain. And I'm sure there's lots of core things that are great about that too. But at this point in my life, I don't really. like. I, I like playing the lighter side of things or trying to find the goodness in things. And that's what I love about what I do. That's super cool. That's that's what a what a great thing to get up and do every day. What a great thing to have in your heart as you you know leave this you know beautiful two year old who I'm sure you'd rather spend all day hanging out with. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's um, yeah, and it is totally that trying to balance all of that out and be mm. a, the best mom I can be and the best wife that I can be and the best daughter and sister and mm. um, so. So, yeah, I guess it kind of falls in line with that, that we all have to work and that's kind of what – and, I, and I, I do, I love what I do. And there's and I kind of – the more I go on, the more there's different prongs to it, I guess, to keep working. Like, you know, in, in our country it's important to be able to do a few different things. Mm. And so I like – yeah, I, I like and – I, and I most of all I would love to do – like I love – the minor triumphs in life that actually you realise are kind of the major triumphs in life. And I like kind of celebrating those within my work, be it in a musical or in a television show or whatever. That's kind of what I love the most is being part of a narrative that is about celebrating the minor things that that are you grateful for because that's something everyone has no matter where you are. I think there's, there's little triumphs in everybody's life that you can celebrate. What, like getting a great parking space, that sort yeah. of stuff? Yeah, oh, totally. Getting a great parking space is like, I love, that's just awesome. Or having like a really great conversation with somebody at the supermarket, in the supermarket line or getting a really nice coffee or just smelling some smell that you like remember from your childhood that just makes you happy or whatever. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very much about trying to remember to be grateful all the time. And I go in and out of being better at that and worse at that, but that's essentially what I'm striving for. Well, you're a pretty good model of how living that way can work out, which is, it's great. Look, I know it's not for everyone and (laughs) it's kind of annoying to some people, but but that's just what has worked for me. And that's what's worked to me. That's what did work for me when I was in a really low place. and And so I guess I kind of stick to that to sort of help me stay in a better place. So you were even when you were dragging along the bottom, you were still able to keep gratitude? Well, that's when I really started to do it more consciously. I always, my granddad's a really grateful person and so is my mum. He's always gone, look at that flower. Isn't that beautiful? Can't you, be- can you believe that's nature? That just occurs in nature. And he's really, he does a lot of that. And he always, look at my family, aren't they? I'm the luckiest man. Look at my wife, isn't she? My grandma, like, um, is this beautiful woman and they're still together and alive and they live in a nursing home together. And he, he still is like, look at my beautiful wife. Isn't she the most beautiful woman you've ever seen? And everything about him is is gratitude. Like he's just been doing that his whole life and kind of almost, I don't even know whether it's as conscious or as, as I've kind of made it in my life. But 
Um, and my mum's good at that too and, and other various family members too. But it wasn't until I was in this really low place that I started to do it like as a practice and because I needed to because I was just hopeless and purposeless and I needed something to grab onto and that's what I grabbed onto. That's freaking awesome to hear you say that. Uh, so that's one really great thing that I'm, I'm hoping people can take away from this conversation. But uh, I, I doubt it is, but let's just say this is the first time that someone has heard uh, a, a working example of goal setting and of working towards that and they're like, I might like a piece of that. Where do you even start? Where does someone listening, where do they even go, you know, where do, where do you even begin? Well, I'll tell you what I did, which is quite, this is what this really nice man helped me do. And he said, write an article about yourself for like five years' time from the third person. So, and put in it all the areas of your life and how you would like them in their best form. And if, if you get to a point when you think, oh, I'll do this because that will make it easier, stop and start that sentence again. Make it so it's the best version of your family life, your health life, your relationships, your working life, finances, all of the areas um, of your life that you want to put in there. And then from that, it kind of helps you because it's hard to sometimes know what your goals are. And then that at least puts something in place. And and you can kind of go, oh, well, that sounds fun. I'll put that. And even if it's not like the best version, it's just the best that you can think of on in that moment. And the only rule is it has to be fun when you're writing it. It has to be a really fun exercise. And then when you read your article, it doesn't matter how long or short, and you don't have to show anyone. If you show somebody, it's quite useful because then you're a bit accountable. But you know, you've got to be careful with who you do show in your life, somebody that you really trust or whatever, but you don't have to show anyone. You can just put it away. But um, from that, then you can get your goals. And that's what I did in this time when I was in my early 20s is he helped me put them into like an I am or I have kind of, so it's like in the present, like, um, you know, I am Glinda in the original Australian production of Wicked. And that was a huge one. But it was like, I am in happy, loving relationships with my family. I have a happy, loving relationship with a partner, that sort of thing. Things that are, there's things that are not too broad in a way, like things that are quite specific so that you can work towards that. And then after that, he just said, have a list of things that you want to be because then you are in control of those things. And like, I am kind, I am generous and all of those, whatever it is that you want. And, um, and so every day I'd wake up after having done that exercise and I've got these things that I'd written down and printed out, I'd get up and I'd think of like five to ten things that I'm grateful for in the last 24 hours. Like I'm grateful that I've had this really inspiring conversation with Osha and this really delicious tea and this really beautiful pink mug. Anyway, whatever it is. And um, the more you go on, the more you realize it's really easy to think of lots of different little things. And um once you've done that and you're feeling kind of good about the good things that have happened in the last 24 hours, even if you've had a bad 24 hours, you can usually find something. Then you put into your things of the things for the future that you want, but in a way that I am this or I have this and be excited about them as you're thinking them or you might want to say them out loud if you're confident enough. Um, and then go into the I am bit. And then he suggested that I finished with I am love and then just let it go and just get on with your day. And it really doesn't take very long, actually. It sounds like a bit of a process, but once you know what they are, you don't even need to be reading them because you kind of know them. And then that, yeah, and it, it it sometimes feels like a chore and it shouldn't feel like a chore. So if it's feeling like a chore, maybe don't do it. But the weird thing is, is that as soon as you start doing them, you imme- I immediately started feeling better always. It's always something that makes me feel better. So it's a bit of it's like going to the gym or something. It's a it's a good practice to get into you for still, me. You still do it? I still do do it. I, I occasionally drop off and do you know things. It's hard having it because you know you're usually woken by mommy, 
these days. I've, my first thought is just like, oh, quick, I've got to go and get Polly or that sort of thing. So I try and find a part in my day. Right now I'm doing Wizard of Oz and I have 55 minutes off in the middle of the show. And so I try and do that sort of thing in that moment when I've got a bit of time. But I know a lot of people, it's hard to, it is hard to find even five minutes sometimes. Well, it's good that you're doing that and not spin the bottle. <laughs> Correct, yeah. That's <laughs> what you used to do. It's true, yeah. My, my, my mid-show habits have changed somewhat since I was 11. <laughs> What did it take? What did it take for you to go back to the land of Oz? Because that, I mean, what a way to go! I've learned the white wedge. I've done it all. See you later. Goodbye. You want me to do what? (laughs) (laughs) It was John Frost, who's our producer. He took myself and Gemma, who was playing Elphaba, the Wicked Witch, uh, the the Green Witch, not Wicked in in Wicked, but. aside separately and said, you know, don't laugh, but I've got this idea. And I hadn't done a musical since having Polly. I I kind of quite on purpose avoided it. A few things I turned down because I just wasn't ready yet to do that. I know what it takes to do eight shows a week in a big leading role and having a, a small child is not really conducive to what you have to, you have to be so careful with your voice and all of that. Well, I do anyway when I'm doing it. And, um, so I just didn't think that it was workable. And I, and I had consciously been wanting to do more television and I have been doing more TV. So I've been doing Doctor Doctor and Sisters and the letdown and things. So, um, but I, I, there was part of me that was like kind of a little bit missing musical theatre. And so when this came along and I knew that it was a lovely part but um, definitely a much smaller part than anything I'd played in the last sort of decade, I thought maybe it was the right time and for us as a family while Polly's little it's it's small short seasons there was just a lot of factors that it was good for our family mm. and so with a lot I discussed it with like all my sisters and my mom and lots with Chris obviously and my dad and yeah it just seemed like the right opportunity for us as a family and it's it's a different it is different I'm not the leading lady and I've got you know a lot less to do but I am really enjoying it it's it's been really just a light, a nice sort of gift of life that's just come along. That's a, a good job, and you know we all have to work. And it was it came around along at a good time. So yeah, it was kind of a just a good fit for my life. Mm. And it is, you know, from what I know of doing the job that I do. Still, I mean, it's not there's no stage, there's no wings. But when you're in a, a creative production team. Everyone from the grips to the lighting to the audio, everybody, everybody all working in the same. It's a bit of a kick, you know. It really is. It's a real kick. It's like there's no show at four in the afternoon and by 10.30, hopefully, everyone's on their feet applauding. And we, if one thing goes wrong, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So we have to have 50,000 things go right in yeah. the next six hours. Yeah, so yeah. let's all work there's, to make sure they happen. Totally. There's this one moment in Wizard of Oz. I fly, I start the show up. So I'm in a harness and I get. I start on the ground behind the curtain whilst the cyclone's happening and I get lifted up to above the proscenium arch where I, where I wait there just for a moment before my entrance and I have this fairly large entrance. Um but while I'm getting hoisted up, I sort of have this bird's eye view of all the goings on of the theatre and it's so magical. I see like Dorothy getting put in her place, um, Sam Dottomate is our beautiful Dorothy, and, and then I see Toto being given to her so she has to lie where the house has fallen and I see the dog trainer, Luke, giving um, Trouble, who plays Toto, his treat and I see all the people working on both sides of the stage and quick changes happening with the ensemble and the stage manager doing the call. It's just like this incredible kind of where's Wally picture of a, of a backstage of a theatre and it's totally magical and that just gives me goosebumps and makes me feel really good and happy and lucky to be That's there. so cool. Yeah, it's cool. Oh, 
I'm so happy you came around today, Lucy. I'm so happy too. Thanks for asking me these questions. You know, you don't really get to verbalise a lot of this stuff. You're sort of just in the day-to-day of... Well, I think it's really, you know, but you have uh, crafted a life that is bigger than you imagined when you were 11. Yeah. Through deliberate and consistent work in a and applied pressure in a specific direction and you are the living embodiment of it happens. Look, it's and I'm, science, man. I'm aware that it could all go away anytime soon, anytime tomorrow, and, and any part of it can go away. So, you know, that's why I guess I'm constantly working towards being as grateful for what I've got like right now in the moment and, yeah, knowing that you just don't know what's going to happen next. But if you can keep putting things into place and at least – if part of it gets lost, you'll still have other parts to kind of pull you back together. Greatest. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. I'm just going to shoot your photo real quick. Great. Cool. Thank you. That was Lucy Durack. You can find her on Twitter. She's at L-U-C-Y-D-U-R-A-C-K. She's great. Uh, go and see her show. It's coming to Adelaide and Melbourne in coming months, weeks and months. Um, you can get tickets online. Uh, but generally, she's a fabulous human being and she'll be with us for many years, which I'm very grateful about because her story is one of inspiration. I hope you found something from there and you're going to take some action off the back of what you just heard. A big thanks to everyone that helped me make this show today. My audio producer is Andy Ma. My show producer is Hayley Van Spagna. Music producer is Toe Hider. And this week's extra special mood regulator... Osher producer, Audrey Griffin. Thank you, my love, for keeping my feet on the ground this week. I love you. Uh, But that's it. Until we talk next time, look after yourselves. Send a fax. (laughs) I'll see you next week. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.